Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. reconciled. See his plans of love accomplished. See his gift, this newborn child. See the mighty, weak, and tender. See the word who is now mute. See the sovereign without splendor. See the fullness destitute. The beloved whom we covet in a state of low repute. See how humankind received him. See him wrapped in swaddling bands, who as Lord of all creation rules the winds by his command. See him lying in a manger without sign of reasoning, word of God to flesh surrendered. He is wisdom's crown, our king. See how tender our defender at whose birth the angels sing. O Lord Jesus, God incarnate, who assumed this humble form, counsel me and let my wishes to your perfect will conform. Light of life, dispel my darkness. Let your frailty strengthen me. Let your meekness give me boldness. Let your burden set me free. Let your sadness give me gladness. Let your death be life for me. Amen. Hear us now as we read this prayer of confession. Almighty God, who inhabits eternity, but dwells with those who are of humble and contrite spirit, before you and our Lord Jesus Christ, we confess our sins. We have ignored the presence of your spirit. We have failed to look for the return of our Savior and judge. We have been blind to your coming and the suffering of the hungry, the exiled, the destitute, the sick, and the imprisoned. In your great goodness, put away our offenses and cleanse us from our sin. For Jesus' sake, amen. And listen now as we read God's offer of forgiveness. Go through, go through the gates, Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highways. Clear it of stones. Lift up an ensign over the people. The Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your salvation comes. His reward is with him, his recompense before him. 
They shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. The people of God, in Jesus Christ, who are a holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration, when Quirinius, the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, that we are able to come here on this Christmas Eve and that we're able to... Uh, sing carols, praising you and remembering um, how much you loved us in the giving of your son, Jesus. Uh, Father, I pray this morning or this evening that we wouldn't be able to leave this place uh, without really wrestling with the reality of how much um, you love us, that you loved us enough uh, to let your son uh, become a human being in order to redeem us, to buy us back, to save us from our brokenness and our rebellion and our sin. And so, Father, Uh, We come tonight um, praying all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good evening and welcome to Seven Hills Fellowship. We are thrilled that you are here. And um, again, the whole sitting and standing thing, I grew up at a high liturgical church, and uh, boy, that is absolutely nothing. Man, and the amazing thing is, in my church, you just magically knew when to sit and when to stand. And it was a good quad workout, actually. By the end of the evening, you had a good burn. Anyway, so... Whatever, we're glad you're here. Um, You've noticed that we've read any number of different passages in scriptures tonight. Uh, Just a little while ago, we read a passage, or actually Drew and Carol Davis read a passage from Luke chapter 2, and you're familiar with that passage. Um, I'm going to jump into it really quickly. Um, I, fortunately, as I was searching around the web, I found a great uh, exegesis of Luke chapter 2. It's actually done by this brilliant philosopher, and uh, so rather than try to sum up the way that he sort of, you know, address this issue of Luke chapter 2 and the real meaning of Christmas, I'm just going to turn it over to him and let you guys hear what he has to say. So, Sam, if you'll play the clip. 
Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. Then there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess. <laughs> awesome. <clears throat> so I told you, a great philosopher right here, Linus. Anyway, so obviously um, you could tell he's reading from Luke chapter 2. It's what Drew and Carol read um, tonight as well. I'm going to um, jump back into Luke chapter 2 very quickly. Um, I think it's important sometimes um, to take away the tinsel and to take away the wrapping and to take away all the Christmas music. And sometimes it's important for us to hear the Christmas story in its um, sort of in its barren, uh, rugged state, if that makes sense. And so I'm going to read through this little passage of Scripture very quickly, and we'll just take a moment and talk about some of the implications of Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. That's all the Roman world. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, let me call time out here really quickly and say this, that part of the gospel, part of this idea of the incarnation of God becoming a man in the person of Jesus, is that we really believe that this happened in history. Uh, several years ago, Kristen and I were in Italy, and uh, we were walking from point A to point B in the historic section of Rome, and uh, we were tired, so we sat down next to this big green hill, and where we sat down to sort of rest for a moment, we looked over and there was a placard next to us, and it was the mausoleum of Caesar Augustus, right? In other words, Caesar Augustus really lived. He really died in AD 14. He's really buried there in Rome. He really called for this census to be taken when Mary and Joseph uh, had to go all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Not only that, but we read about this man named Quirinius. And uh, Jewish philosophers, sorry, Jewish historians have made it very clear that this man Quirinius came to power in AD 6. And so all of these things that we read about, they happened in history. It's not mythology, right? But it really happened in history. Verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And so again, this, uh, the Roman government called together this census for the purpose of taxation. And David was from this, uh, the family, yeah, uh, sorry, very quickly here. Joseph was the family of David, and so he had to go to Bethlehem where his family was from, all the way from Nazareth. It was a trip of about 120 miles. And you can just imagine, here's Joseph, right, leading the donkey on foot, 
with Mary riding on the back of the donkey for 120 miles. I don't know the average speed of a donkey, but I'm guessing that that trip took a long time. And I'm guessing that if you're a pregnant person riding on the donkey, it probably felt like it took even that much longer, right? This was not an easy trip. It wasn't a clean or simple trip to take this, this trip of 120 miles for the purpose of taxation. And it says here that they were betrothed. And uh, this was actually a legally binding agreement. It wasn't exactly the same as being married, but to end a betrothal, you actually had to go through a divorce, which is what uh, we're told in Matthew 1.19 that Joseph was ready to do when he found out that Mary was pregnant. Verse 6 goes on to say, And while they were there, the time came for her, that is Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. So this would have been in the dirt, right? This would have been on the floor of a barn or maybe a cave. The two places where people sort of historically say they think Jesus was born were in these two caves that are in Jerusalem. And wrapped him in swaddling clothes. In other words, just strips of cloth, strips of rags. And laid him in a manger. Again, if you go to Jerusalem, they'll show you any number of different um, historical mangers that they've uncovered, archaeologists have found. And these were feeding troughs. They really were places where donkeys and camels and cows and sheep and goats and seed and hay and grain would have been stored for these animals to feed. And Jesus was laid in an animal trough. And it goes on to say, because there was no place for them in the inn. Not an inn, but in the inn, right? This is not glamorous, not glorious, not pretty, not easy. This was hard. Verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, or some translations say living out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Now, just stop for a second here and realize who God pronounced this message to. These shepherds were considered to be outcasts, right? They were considered very much to be the lower class of society. They were essentially sort of homeless people that lived out in the fields taking care of wealthy people's animals. They weren't allowed to testify in court. They were ceremonially unclean. They were considered by most people to sort of be thieves and untrustworthy. And so notice the irony of the angel's message, right? The irony is that this good news is for all people, right? The gospel is always for outsiders. The gospel is always for those people who recognize their need. The gospel is for Samaritans and Roman centurions. It's for wayward women, for prostitutes, for tax collectors, the sick, the poor, broken, 15-year-old girls, shepherds, Iranian astronomers. This message was and is and will always be for all people, especially outsiders, especially for those people who know that they are broken. This is good news for all people. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, not in a rich man's house, not in a shiny germ-free maternity ward, not even in someone's guest room, but again, in a feeding trough built for cattle and donkeys and for camels. And suddenly, as if it weren't enough that there was one angel, it says there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor 
rest. That word that we translate heavenly host is actually a Greek word, stratia, which uh, ultimately meant an army. So it wasn't just that a single angel came to announce the birth of Jesus to these shepherds, but then he was joined by a whole army, a whole legion of angels. You can just imagine the fear and the trembling of the shepherds, but you can also imagine the seriousness with which they took this message. So that's those verses, those 14 verses. So the question is, what, are, what is the main idea, or what are some of the main ideas of this passage? Well, one, it could be that God becomes a man, right? That, we could preach an entire sermon, maybe write a book on God becoming a human being. It could be joy to the world, right? Another book could be written on that. It could be, for unto you is born a Savior. That'd be a great thing to preach a sermon on. It could be glory to God in the highest, right? It could be that this good news is for all people. Really, any good preacher could talk about any of these things as primary themes from this passage. There's a lot here, but what I'm going to talk about tonight is just very one simple thing, and it's this. It's that the story of the incarnation is an offer of peace from God to men. Let me say that one more time. That the story of the incarnation is an offer of peace from God to rebels, to people that turn their back upon him, to people that have chosen to go their own way. It's an offer of peace from God to men. Listen again to verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and this multitude, this army of angels at the top of their lungs is cheering, shouting, singing, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Isaiah 9, 6 says that when this baby comes, this king comes, this Messiah comes, that he'll be called the prince of peace, right? And the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. So when we think about peace, we think of peace, you know, we think of nice, feel-good things, but ultimately peace in the Hebrew word was much bigger. It was holistic. It was ultimately the state of being where everything is made right, right? where every wrong is made right, where everything crooked is made straight, where everything broken is healed. This shalom is a picture of everything being made right physically, right? And so this offer of peace is an offer of no more cancer, no more diabetes, no more having the flu. It's physical wholeness. It's also this idea of everything being made right relationally. So no gossip, no slander, no lying, no envy, no divorce, no bragging, Right, And so it's wholeness. It's the way it was supposed to be physically. It's the way it was supposed to be relationally. It's, always, it's also the way it was supposed to be psychologically. Right? And so this offer of peace or shalom, this wholeness of everything being made right, is also true psychologically. So no more anxiety, no more depression, no more narcissism, no more attachment disorder, no more paranoia. But perhaps the most important offer of this shalom is that everything will be made right spiritually. That all of a sudden people who were rebels, people who turned their backs on God, people who refused to believe that God was good and that he loved them, that he knew best for them, and they decided to go their own way, it was an offer of spiritual peace with God. That's why verse 14 says, again, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And again, that's kind of the twist to this passage, isn't it? It's that it's not, unfortunately, peace to everyone, but it's those on whom his favor rests, right? So let's let that sink in for a moment. So the question is, who does God's favor rest upon? Who can have this hope of spiritual, relational, physical, psychological wholeness? Who can have that hope? Who can have that peace? 
Well, Paul makes it very clear in Romans 5. Therefore, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, upon whom does God's favor rest? Those of whom trust in his son, Jesus. Verse 6 says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He's making the point over and over and over again. It was while we were in rebellion against God. It's when we weren't choosing God. It's when we were walking away from God. It's when we were sort of giving God the stiff arm that he sent his son Jesus to die while we were still sinners. Verse 9, and since we have been made right in God's sight, and since we've been made right or righteous in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Why do we have peace? Because we are made clean and righteous in God's sight, in God's sight. Verse 10, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us not enemies, but rather has made us friends of God. So upon whom, upon who does God's favor rest? Those of us in this room who trust in his son, Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection. So the question for all of us in the room, this room tonight are, where do you stand? Where do we stand with God? Do you stand in peace with God? Does this peace rest upon you? Or, unfortunately, are you on the other side still keeping God at arm's length? You see, some of you have already come to that point in your life, right, where you understand that God has saved you. In fact, tonight we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and so there are tables around the room with bread and wine and bread and grape juice and gluten-free offerings over there. I kind of hate to say that. kind of ruins the spirit, but it is over there. And some people call this meal that we're talking about communion. Other people call it the Eucharist. Other people call it the Lord's Supper. But essentially, it's all the same. It's an offer of peace, right? It's an offer of peace from God to us because we're now his friends. We're now his children. He now sees us as righteous. And so if you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, that this, this meal is for you. And it's intended to be a regular reminder of God's grace and mercy and offer of peace to those who trust in his son. Some of you in this room um, are not there yet. Some of you here this evening may not believe in God at all. And so all of this may just feel kind of like tradition. It may feel like kind of a nice, sweet thing to do the night before Christmas. Maybe, on the other hand, you believe in God, but rather you believe that you're at peace with him because you've been more good than bad, right? And so if you don't believe in God, or if you believe you have peace with him because you've been more good than bad, then frankly, this meal isn't for you, right? This meal is for those who believe and trust that peace with God, that righteousness before God, that wholeness with God comes completely and only through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And so this evening, if you're that person who doesn't quite believe in God, who doesn't believe that salvation is by faith in Christ alone, I would simply ask you to sit back and watch the people of God tonight 
as they eat this meal that symbolizes the peace that they have with their heavenly Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask uh, that you take a moment now. I'm going to read the words of institution, and then I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask you to take a moment before you receive the Lord's Supper. And as you're sitting there, and even as you're potentially standing in line, preparing to receive the Lord's Supper, I want you to receive the truth of this meal, that you have peace with God. There's no animosity. There's no more brokenness, right? Because God sees you as perfect in his sight because of your, though it be weak at times, trust in his only son. Hear now the words of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this meal. I thank you for this uh, reminder that we are at peace with you, not because of the absence of badness in our lives, that we are at peace with you, not because of the presence of goodness in our lives. Uh, Father, that we are at peace with you simply because we have trusted in your son, Jesus, and his work on our behalf. And so, Father, this evening, um, as people uh, sit in their seats dwelling upon, thinking upon uh, what it means to have peace with you, the Lord of the universe. Um, I pray that through this meal of bread and wine and through the power of your spirit, that you might take that truth and you might sink it down through their ears, through their brains, and all the way down into their hearts, that they might be changed and they might really believe that they stand before you in complete peace with you, again, because of your son, Jesus. And so, Father, it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Reminder that we'll be worshiping tomorrow at one o'clock here in the DeSoto. Now receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and may he give you his peace. Merry Christmas.